family-owned shop in Loganville, Sosby's Garage, for all your automotive repair needs. We service all makes and models, Ford and domestic. We repair engines, alternators, brakes, alignments, AC systems, and more, using certified technicians with over 90 years of combined experience. We also offer same-day service for some repairs. Sosby's Garage, 200 Bay Creek Road in Loganville. Dependable, honest, and fair. Look us up on Google or Facebook. We'll take good care of you. Broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett studio inside the Sonesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel, it's time for Case in Point, presented by Paradigm Security Services. We are the cornerstone of security in the Southeast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Case in Point, presented by Paradigm Security Services. I'm your host, Rick Strong, president of Paradigm Security Services, and we're excited to be with you today on Business Radio X. We're coming to you from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, located in the beautiful Sonesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel in Duluth, Georgia. If you would, please hit that subscribe button. Uh, myself and my guests would be appreciated very much. Uh, each week, as you know, we generally deal with uh, feature businesses in the Atlanta area, especially those that serve Gwinnett County with relation to physical security. Now, while all businesses don't have security concerns and not all are about physical security or they all have phys they all have security concerns we'll touch on a little different area today i am bringing on a actually she's bringing me on yes uh, turning doc, the tables yep dr Jeannie burnett with uh, the mana mana scholarship fund scholarship fund and we're going to start something new starting today uh, I'll have my case in point every other week, and Dr. Burnett will have her show, food, which is faith, food, food, Faith, and Feelings. Food, Faith, and Feelings, and this time slot every other Wednesday, and we're kind of partnering up a little bit where she's the nonprofit side, and I'm hoping to be a profit side, but, <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, um, I've known Jeannie for a long time. Uh, we, I was uh, on her board for a while. We'll get into all that when she starts uh, slinging mud at me. I mean, uh, talking to me. Yes. Um, we're going to do an, I hope it's an interesting show for everybody. I know it's going to be a challenging show for me. Uh, Dr. Burnett is going to, she talks and deals with recovery issues. I'm a uh, psychologist yes, she, of over 20 years. And although I am just 39, um, <laughs> I was like a Doogie Hauser for those of you there who you understand. Go. Well, that that date that that dates me too. Yes, it does. <laughs> so I am a psychologist, a licensed clinical psychologist here in Gwinnett County. Uh, we have a program under Mana Scholarship Fund called Mana Treatment, where we provide counseling services for people who have life-threatening eating disorders as well as trauma-based disorders, and. Uh, as a part of this partnership, I thought it would be fun to turn the tables on Rick. Yeah, I can hardly wait. <laughs> Been thinking about this for a couple of days, well, a lot more than that, since we brought it up. But uh, I'll let you do your thing here, and I'm going to sit back and well talk. Okay, so um, <clears throat> yes, I, I get to do what I do best, which is ask people questions yep, and, and listen. Yes, and I will. Sometimes I listen. Yeah. I'm kidding. Um, so I'm Rick and I met through the Gwinnett Chamber 10 or 12 years ago. A long time. 
um, through a mutual. You were 12, I think. Yes, through a mutual friend, and she suggested that I talk to Rick because of his interesting story. And when you are designing a board, you want people who understand from different perspectives what the goal of the organization is and <clears throat> the goal of MANA is to help people who have life-threatening eating disorders and now we've added in trauma to get the treatment that they need to live healthy lives and so addiction is addiction is addiction yes you can have a drug addiction you can have a gambling addiction you can have an eating disorder you can have behavior um, <clears throat> yeah, well, but it can also be an internal. So even mm -hmm. like obsessive compulsive disorder. So all of those things are stemming from a, a core issue. And it's it, their ways to deal with your pain. And so because of Rick's history, which we're going to get into in just a second, um, I, I was thrilled and delighted to add him to our board. Um, and so Rick, why don't you kind of give everyone the understanding of what your addictive behaviors were about? Well, that's one of those things where, where do you start? Um, you know, in at the beginning, one of the things that I think is important, uh, a lot of people look at addiction as a stigma mm. and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it to anybody. Uh, they get into a recovery uh, setting like AA or NA or Treat, mana treatment mana treatment and they have a hesitation to tell their story because they feel like everybody's going to look down everybody's going to judge them and a lot of people do I mean I'm not gonna I won't di discount that because a lot of people do right but the only way that people begin to understand is if people are willing to come out and talk about it in a lot of ways it's just like uh, being gay Yep. Um, it, that is a, Are you telling us something? No, I'm not coming out of the closet, sweetie. Um, <laughs> no. Sorry. One of the thing, one of my mechanisms in working with people is to help them breathe. It's humor. Is humor. Absolutely. Humor and laughter makes us breathe. And so when things get uh, deep, then I infuse a little humor in Are there. you trying to tell me something? About what? Well, you said when things get deep, you try to lighten it up. And I was talking about, you know, being gay and... I'm just kidding, folks. I'm just giving back to Projection. her what she gave to me. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Karma is hell. Um, no, but people have always looked at that. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to come out of the closet. They don't want people to know what's going on in their lives because people are going to look down on them. Shame. Shame. The shame factor, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's the same way with addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're addicted to any kind of behavior or addicted to alcohol, drugs, eating, whatever. This is something that people have to come to grips with with themselves first. And then if they're comfortable enough, if the more they share, the easier it becomes. Yeah. But a lot of people don't look at it that way. They're scared to share. And that's one of the reasons why I've tried my best in my 22 years now of recovery to be able to not feel hesitant about talking about it if someone asks. I don't run out there and blab to everybody what's going on, but if they ask me, I try to be honest with them and tell them, figuring if they didn't want to know, they wouldn't ask. Right. And so I guess that's why we're here today, to kind of share those feelings and, and, and talk a little bit about 
you know, I know in, in recovery setting, you start with, you know, my name is Rick Strawn, and I was born in 1951 in uh, West Texas, where all the tumbleweeds blow, and went through the 50s. Um, personally, I had a lot of self-esteem issues coming up because I was very overweight. Mm. Uh, I grew up, um, had a lot of bullying issues that were bullying to me because of my being overweight. Did you overeat? I don't really know what I did, tell you the truth. Yeah. I just know that I was fat. Well, the way I looked at myself. Okay, so a lot of... Self-esteem. A lot of times when there are bullying issues and what kids know how to do is they, they know, then that's what they can do. Yeah. And so we might say that potentially your addiction started when you were what, eight or 10 earlier than that. And you were overeating. And because there's so there's an immediate feedback mechanism when we eat. And uh, so potentially you had an eating disorder, you might have had a binge eating disorder. I acknowledge that. Uh, Because as I grew up, it didn't do it when I was small. I just it was a lot of self-esteem issues, and I'd mm-hmm. eat, I guess, because of that, and mm-hmm. which would create more self-esteem issues mm-hmm. because the bullying started and all that kind of crap. Right. But as I got older, and I know when I, as I went through and, and finally went on the police department, well, when, actually when I went through high school and started playing football and actually started exercising, mm-hmm. then I lost a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And But, you know, you still have the self-esteem issues even when you lose weight. Which is, you know, you think about it, you think, well, oh, I'm, I've gotten all healthy, I've gotten, you know, muscular, I've gotten uh, trimmed down where I'm um, 180 pounds, five foot ten, and it's all muscle, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But you still have those self-esteem issues where you don't think that you're as good as anybody else. You still, in your mind, you still see those problems. Right. And so what I'm going to, I'm going to interject um, an interpretation of that, which is, you fixed the outside, but the inside, which is what I call the core or the seed of the problem, did not get fixed by fixing the outside. Absolutely. And that is a huge, huge um, metaphor and um, situation that happens with people if they're overweight. Um, they might develop anorexia at 300 pounds and lose weight. And because in the mindset, they continue to move the bar. So, all right, I've lost to 200. Okay, let's get down to 150. Okay, I've lost to 150. Let me see if I can get to 140. And so they continue to move the bar when they actually accomplish. It's like things are never good enough. Correct. So um, that is the essence of an eating disorder. Well, and I say that I, I had that disorder among all the other crap. that When I was growing up, one of the things that to tag over to the alcohol part my parents used to have, we were, you know, we were not a wealthy family. We were, you know, we lived in a two-bedroom house with my grandmother and my daughter. I mean, my my sister, myself, my, you know, with five of us in a two-bedroom house. Mm-hmm. So three of us slept in two twin beds. Mm. My, my, my grandmother and my sister slept in one twin bed. I slept in the other twin bed, and we shared a room, you know, until we, until we moved uh, to Dallas, which was, you know, going into the ninth ninth grade wow so you know we lived in this small stuff but we had parties through the 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 group around our neighborhood was we had like three families three sons three dads that always went hunting three so what they did is they'd have parties and they would drink Mm. 
And of course, guess who got to be the bartender? And Little everybody Rick. knows that you you don't hand somebody a drink unless you taste it and make sure it tastes right. Right. So I tasted a lot of drinks. I can remember. And you were in the ninth grade. Uh, I was earlier than that. Oh. I mean, this was. Twelve. Yeah, probably 12, 13 years old. Okay. You know? Very, very young. Okay. Um, I can remember one time my grandmother fixed me uh, bourbon and water. And it was fine. She fixed it for me. I was allowed to drink because they figured don't take it, don't keep them from it. Or they'll want to do it more later, which absolute. is an absolute ridiculous idea. Right. I can tell you firsthand. Uh, then she fixed me the second one, but she was about three-fourths looped when she fixed the second one. So as a result, I think she confused the shot of water with all the booze. or with Ooh. the, the shot. I think she ended up making it with a shot of water and all booze. One quarter water and, and it three quarters. And it was so good. <laughs> I remember my mom, I said something to her when we were outside. She slapped the hell out of me. Oh, no. And I laughed about it and ran across and tripped. Oh, I've got to watch that hose. You know, it was absolutely... She got very embarrassed because she ended up with a sick son in his bed, throwing up all over himself and everybody, you know, everything. Was this the first time you'd ever drank? Oh, no. Oh, okay. It was the first time I'd ever gotten drunk. But she was so worried about somebody walking into the bedroom and seeing her drunk kid laying there in bed with puke all over himself. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really care. I was totally passed out. (laughs) Well, you, yeah. (laughs) But that's just an idea of what came up and it, what transpired getting to how it older, started how mm-hmm. it all started and then i went for a lot of years didn't do any drinking or anything but then i started you know on the back of the alcohol somewhere along the, as later in life so let me interrupt you again this is what this is we're, we're kind of in a, a semi-therapeutic environment well, hey, go right for now. it baby all right <laughs> i know you're, you're you're such a good you're such a good sport but what I what I like to say to clients is, um, you developed your addiction. So most addictions are developed around our attachments, mm-hmm. and our attachments are always with people, right? But they get transferred to substances, so alcohol, food, uh, behaviors, all that. So what you just told me is that your attachment pattern was developed around your grandmother. And your mother and your the, your and family dad and just the family. So the attachment is, if I'm going to be a part of this family, then this is what I do. Exactly. And so that can get, that attachment pattern can have a lot of positive and some some pain in it. And even if it subsides and it you go through years that you don't really drink, and you think there's no way I'm going to ever be an alcoholic because I don't like to drink. Right. Then it works into other things. You, you, you develop that being fat. The whack-a-mole game is yeah. what I call it. Oh, I'm telling you. Comes up here with alcohol, comes and, up, goes down, then it goes up. Food. Food, yep, other yep. things. Um, so. you know, I always said if I'd ever really got into drugs, I'd have been an addict because that's mm-hmm. the mindset. I have, a, I have an addictive mind, and no matter what I do, I have a tendency to overdo whatever it is I pick and sometimes or whatever picks me so i'm gonna tell you that um your genetics are a huge part right absolutely um and so because i mean we all have we all have associations we all have attachments and so we can all get addicted to something Mm -hmm. but genetically there is something different in people who really develop a struggle Oh, I, I I totally agree. I learned that a long time ago. And I'm not going to undermine or uh, 
discount the impact of trauma and pain. Pain is always a sticky, it's, a, it's one of the stickiest things that we have. Nobody wants to talk about it, nobody wants to feel it, nobody wants to deal with it. Um, however, it is that thing that continues that behavioral pattern and it, 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 that's what causes the destruction, oh. is un, undealt with pain. No doubt. Uh, I know I can remember one time when I was a kid uh, trying to get that uh, attention, I guess is probably what it was. But, you know, I, I was waiting on my parents to get home because I was going to uh, surprise them and sh- shake them up and make them feel sorry. So I happened to stand out on something and there we had an old elm tree out in the yard and I put a rope around the elm tree and then the rope around my neck and I was going to scare How old them. How you? Oh, I was... I don't know, probably nine or ten, oh. I guess. And then I lost balance, and I'm screaming. Luckily, my grandmother heard me and came out there, and everything was fine. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking on the show, which is one of the reasons why I can't even stand a collar around my neck tight wow. to this day. Yeah, that was a this very traumatic experience. Very traumatic, very stupid. But, you know, that I, I'll be honest with you, I never tried anything like that again. Good. I do other things to get attention. Uh, but that was something that, you know, it's a wake-up call to yourself in a way. But how much can you wake up at 9 or 10 years old? I mean, it's just a bad experience at that point. Yeah. Uh, the trauma is just unbelievable to think of what you almost did. Of course, my grandmother and my dad solved the problem. He beat the hell out of me with a mm. belt when I got home for doing such a stupid thing. But... Um, you know, you go through that, then you move into the the food issues with all the weight issues even more, and then the down, and then the back up again. Uh, after I got married, I got fat again. But I had a tendency at that point, I looked at, uh, you know, bulimia as a possibility of getting that stuff down. So you eat like hell, you love it all, you just gorge yourself, and then you go get rid of it all in the toilet, and you think, well, that's okay, so now I'm still good. So... You're saying that not only did you start your addiction with food, and then it transferred to alcohol, and now you're telling us you were bulimic? At one point, yeah. And wow. I think I think any of these addictions that you have are always still there. No, uh, not always. There well, is there is a possibility of full recovery. Well, yeah. I, as spe- as, at least with food. Okay. With, uh, with alcohol, I think you're if you're an alcoholic, all you are is one drink away from being an alcoholic again. Right, right. And I, I don't know about the other part. You know about that part better than I do. Yeah. I mean, I have no desire to do any of that anymore. Mm-hmm. But the thoughts always come like right now I'm 30, 40 pounds heavier than I want to be. Mm-hmm. There's always that thought, well, you know, I could just, anything I eat, I could purge, purge and slowly get back to where I was. But, you know, at the same time, so I don't want to le- do that. Let me just say how amazing it is that you are willing to share this with us because very very few men will admit that they have issues like that whether they're anorexic or bulimic Um, a lot of people in the world have an overeating disorder Mm -hmm. um, and you know they kind of wear that there's a lot of people also that have bigger bodies that um, have uh, issues with their their thyroid and hormones and different things like that, which is what the factor is. Mm-hmm. But for someone to come on, to come out and talk about a man, especially, um, how old are you? 
I am now 69 years old. Yeah, that's huge, Rick. That's a big deal. I just want to thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. I don't talk about that. I mean, I've talked about it twice, and both of them you've been involved in. In my I life. just pull it out of people. I know. God, you just <laughs> slap them around. Listen, and buddy, just, I've got Kleenex right as here. As they say, they just puke it up. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I th- it's important. I think there's a lot of men that have that issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's important they understand that, you know, it's not that, you know, it's not something that you can't talk about. Right. You just have to pick your audience, and why the hell I'm doing this on this station in this in, in this forum? Because you trust me. Hell no. Yeah, but all these other nuts out here that I talk to. No, I'm just kidding. I'm one of them. You're not calling your listeners nuts. No. Well, actually, <laughs> most of my listeners they're good nuts. I love them to death. Good. They're nuts because they listen to me. But you know, it's one of those things where you kind of feel like you can't control it because of the weight issue that you can't control your weight. You got you got to control it and it mm. i think a lot of people that have addictions have a very controlling uh personality they they don't like losing control and i'm not in control if my weight's high or i'm not in control if i don't feel good or or somebody doesn't like me or you know you've got all these issues that roll around into one and then as i went on and i started I really got into it. My, I think my dad was, I look back on it, and I can't say, and I'm not one to call anybody an alcoholic, but I look back on it. He spent a lot of time in his basement in his chair by himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always had a couple of bottles down there, and I'm pretty sure that through his life, he died at 49 on cardiac arrest. Oh, wow. So I'm pretty sure he had his bouts with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a lot of drinking. I remember everywhere we went, he drank. We had parties he drank. I've seen him drink around a campfire when we're deer hunting uh, at night after the hunt because mm-hmm. uh, we used to do that every year. We hunted in the hunting season, fished in fishing season when I grew up in uh, actually New Mexico where we moved to from Texas. We moved to New Mexico, which is where all the other stuff happened. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it was. It, I really think he had those issues. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize it at the time. I realized so it again, more as I moved forward. So again, there's that attachment. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're, you want to connect. And so um, it's, it's really interesting because there's so, like you've already just, you've just told us within about 20 minutes, all of these really critical issues in your life that you don't typically share, that we don't talk That's about. That's only the start. And, <laughs> um, and so, but the start, I want you to understand, the start the very beginning of it doesn't necessarily go away mm-hmm. um, because there's this root core pain this co- and this belief system develops as a result. Um, most of the time people think I'm not good enough or I'm not okay or I'm not lovable or I'm not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that there are two main factors that really um, push everyone's behavior and one is the desire for love and the other is the desire for safety. And um, there's only one other person, I can't remember her name, but she wrote a book about this. And I, somebody told me about it after I had started talking about it. So, um, but, so I believe that those are two core pieces and uh, motivations in people to try and get their needs met. Are you going to love me and are you going to keep me safe? And so I would say, look at your job. 
Well, I was just going to say, think of those two core issues. I've had multiple marriages mm. looking looking for love in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. And, and all the wrong people. And all the wrong people. And I went into police work. Yep. Into security. Yep. Um, because of the love and the security, the, both those two issues led me to where I went in life as far as uh, personal and as far as professional. And when, and so when you couldn't get either one of those through whatever, wherever, you went to alcohol and you went to food. Pretty much. And yeah, more, uh, more alcohol. Food kind of it, it, it surfaced every once in a while. Sure. It was a, it was an issue, but it wasn't as big an issue. Right. But the alcohol became a very big issue. Um, yeah. And so when did you decide that it was a big issue and you? Like, what was your sort of point of transition from, I got to do something about this? Well, basically, when did I hit my bottom? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I was working with the police department. and How old were you? Oh, I was in my, well, it's been, I've been retired now 22, 23. I've been retired the same length of time I've been in recovery mm. uh, because I went into recovery after that. I managed to find myself sitting in a jail cell as a as a friend of mine said i knew i had an addiction to alcohol when i broke out in handcuffs mm. so you know i'm sitting there in a jail cell uh, locked, locked up, up covered up or sobered up pretty much yep and my attorney says if because i'd already been there for you know had, had bounced in there once and come back out and was going to do the recovery thing and wasn't ready it didn't stick went right back twice as much I mean, when you're, you wouldn't believe, and I'm, I won't say, but you wouldn't believe the amount of alcohol I put down my throat. Uh, it's amazing that I have a liver. Mm. Uh, when I went, when I finally hit the cell the last time, it was for a DUI sitting in a parking lot, passed out. Oh, wow. In, in an apartment complex, in my apartment, in our uh, subdivision. Mm-hmm. But I was sitting there all by myself, car running to stay warm because it was winter and it was cold, but I was asleep and all that. I had a point four six alcohol level. The doctor said you should be dead. Right. And almost half of your blood was alcohol. Yeah, I mean it was it was wow. unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's God scary. God is watching over you. Yeah, and and to this day I have no liver problems. I have no mm. heart problems. I have. I'm the doctor said I'm a lot healthier than I should be by far. <laughs> and you know God has granted me the luxury of being able to make it through all that without killing myself Mm. but when you have your attorney say if you don't straighten this up if you don't if you don't do something and go into recovery then I'm not going to represent you anymore my wife says Mm. if you don't do something and you don't get into recovery I'm not going to stay I won't be here Mm -hmm. I mean so I was going to literally lose everything Mm -hmm. I was already uh, on leave of absence from the first one with the police department, and I was using up all my sick, te- sick leave, borrowing sick leave, vacation. I mean, I was doing all of this. So finally, that really hit home. Uh, my wife and my daughter, my stepdaughter and myself, sat down and talked about the issues. And So was uh, this an intervention? No, it was really not an intervention as much as it was. I think the intervention was when my attorney told me, you know, you're going to sit no. there and, and it, <laughs> nobody coming to get you if you don't do this. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we talked about it. And, then, you know, 
do you want to, to fight to stay on the police department? Mm. Or do you want to retire and try and, you know, go into recovery? And well, what I did, not really retire and go into recovery, but, you know, do you want to do something about it? Mm. Or do you want to fight to keep your job? Do you want to do it? So we decided, and they said, we'll support you however you want to do it. If you, if you want to go for the police department and your law enforcement career of over 25 years, we'll stand behind you and we'll be right there. And if not, we'll support you there too. Mm. So what I did is I went There's your love. Yeah. And let me, let me rephrase it. That little piece came after what I'm about to tell you. Okay. Um, when we were down there and I came out, uh, I decided I had to do something. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So there was a place called the Hickey House, which mm-hmm. was a recovery community up in uh, Helen. And they had several houses. They had the Blue House, which is right there where you turn off to go to the falls mm-hmm. in Helen. Mm-hmm. There's a big house right up there on that corner that is a recovery house. Mm. And there's there Are they still there? Yeah, they're oh, okay. still there. I've never heard of them. Um, we called that the Blue House because it was painted blue. <laughs> but they had that. They had a house in uh, Tacoa. They had, they had several Clarkston. They had several houses within their community and uh, Hickey was a recovering alcoholic and he was a Yankee from New York that had I mean he was tough as nails Mm -hmm. and he was rough well anyway long story short I went ahead and agreed to go into the Hickey house Mm. and I spent uh, three months there and um, it was a long three months Uh, but you know, it, we, I went through this three months, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question because most there's a lot of people that don't understand the process of recovery. Um, when you know the the solution is just stop drinking. Well, that's what they say the solution is. In the end, it is about not putting alcohol down your mouth. Okay, so why can't you just stop drinking? What did I do to stop drinking? No, why couldn't you just stop drinking? Why isn't that I don't that think I really wanted to. It uh, was my solution to the way I was feeling. Right. I didn't want that to feel. That is your attachment. Yeah. So I didn't want to feel. Your attachment and your your solution to the pain problem mm-hmm. was to cover it up with alcohol. I, was, I had a lot of depression. I was really feeling... I just want bottom. people to understand that until you deal with that core that root issue the stuff is not going to change and the and that's why like so many times people say oh you're going to ask me about my family and my childhood i'm like well yeah because that's usually where it starts a lot has to do with that yes and so we have to go back into the root core issue and if we don't we are just fighting a very difficult not necessarily losing but a very difficult battle Mm-hmm. So well, I had a lot of I had a lot of family issues and had had issues with uh, you know my stepdaughter and, and and there was a lot of stuff that just it was just driving me into a hole that, of depression I couldn't get out of and that made me feel better to just not feel mm-hmm. and the more I drank the less I felt absolutely I mean you don't feel till you pass out then when you wake up it's easy to start you it start is doing it again a central nervous system depressant yeah it absolutely stops the feeling. And so that's that was why I drank was because I didn't like the way I felt and I didn't like all that was going on. So 
I'd try. I'd stay sober long enough to go to work, in the beginning, mm-hmm. and then eventually I, I would be drinking up until the time I went to work. Then I wouldn't drink at work. Mm-hmm. Then I'd drink when I got in the car. I'd drink going home. Wow. So it had become just almost twenty-four hour a day um, addiction. Yeah. Uh, I was doing what I could. I mean, it, when you get to a point where you'll uh, have vodka in a in a container mm-hmm. and have it uh, like iced tea or something and have it sitting in your car all day long in the summer mm. it's probably 120 degrees <laughs> when you get done and when you get out of work <laughs> you have no problem drinking 120 de- i mean it, it's nuts that's like it's a hot just, toddy yeah well it was real hot <laughs> but it's just the whole thought process of being willing to do something like that and stay in that cloud if you will Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's crazy. Not I mean, hurting is the biggest deal that any human can deal it deals with. And then the other part of that is the powerlessness to make it stop. The, yes. And what pushed me over that edge was everybody saying you're on your own. They they did what I suggest doing when I when I went into uh, something like the the transport business where we transported teenagers mm-hmm. and stuff yeah. when I, you know it, it helped me to, to talk about it to counsel young people about what got them there whether it was alcohol whether it was drugs a lot of them were just addicted to the behavior that they were displaying of screw you you can't make me do anything mm-hmm. and they were addicted to that mm-hmm. uh, they, it made them feel good made them feel important so we had chances to talk to them uh, while we were in transport. We might be going to Costa Rica. We might be going to Dominican Republic or Jamaica or Montana or New York. Wherever we were going, I was able to share with them mm. a little of my life and what I had done and what it had taken me to. And it, it gave me a purpose to be able to try to help someone to sh- by sharing. By mentoring. And I think that ability to share on such a regular basis outside of an AA room or outside of any of the recovery settings, being able to share one-on-one that someone that was obviously having issues. Mm-hmm. And actually, the people with the schools and stuff used to you know, talk about it. I was one of the only people that they ever saw actually get a hug from one of these kids that I had quote-unquote kidnapped in the middle of the night to take to one of these recovery centers. Um, I'm the, one of the very few people they ever saw get a hug from the kids. Mm-hmm. But it was because we could relate. Mm-hmm. Because I, mm-hmm. I didn't treat them like, I'm going to whip, you're going to go, and I'm going to drag you. If I, It might have started out that way. Mm-hmm. But on the car ride or on the plane ride or whatever, we had time to say, look, you know, let me tell you a little bit about me. I, I get where you're at. Mm-hmm. And it was able, it's amazing how much that helped some of these kids get through the year process that they had in front of them of getting through this thing. Yeah. Um, because the first three months that I was in recovery uh, in the Hickey House, uh, it was it was a big deal. And when I reached that point to where they said, you can go and you can go back to work at 90 days, I decided that I wasn't ready. So I actually voluntarily stayed there another 90 days. So total, I was there six months. Wow. I became manager of the house, which I really didn't want to do, but he made me do. He said, you need this. You need to be the manager of this because 
and take the responsibility to help you in your recovery. And Grow up. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Put your big boy pants on. There's a lot of growing up that you have oh, to do in recovery. God, you are kidding. Taking responsibility. Well, and that helped, I think, really, because I came back. I had uh, a, a lot of crow eating. I mean, I felt when I came back to the police department, it was different. People mm-hmm. treated me different. Um, they had respect for you? They respected the fact that I did what I did. But that was still like on the outside looking in. They wouldn't give me the positions that I was always the person they called in to fix everything. Mm-hmm. And I became the person that, that just kind of shoved off to the side while we were waiting on all this transition to are they going to keep him? Are they going to not keep him? You know, what are we going to do with him? How are we going to work him? And that's what really made me decide that it wasn't worth fighting for as much as I wanted to. Yeah. It's time to retire and move on. And, and you were a police officer. Yeah. Okay. I was a sergeant in criminal investigations. Wow. 25-year um, veteran. Dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> just the question, just the facts. But, um, you know, and I loved my career. Mm. Uh, my career, I wouldn't do it again right now based on what's going on today. Oh, yeah. But it gave me the ability to understand myself a lot. I worked so many different – I was in two years and about – Everywhere I was, I was there about two years, and they moved me somewhere else. I get it just about ready where I could kick up my feet, relax, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Things are running just like I want to. They say, well, fantastic. We need you to go over here to homicide, or we need you to go to burglary, or we need you to go to auto theft, or larceny, or uh, child sex crimes, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just, I looked at it at one point of, you know, why can't I stay in one place like everybody else? But as I got through and moving along through the years, I said, you know, this is the best thing that could ever happen to me. I got two years of understanding in almost every unit within the criminal investigations division or the special investigations. I worked major violator narcotics with DEA for two years. It was awesome. Uh, There were so many interesting assignments that I had. And as a supervisor and as a sergeant, I got in control of what was going on got to read all the reports whoa what a what a benefit um but it was able to let me see some of the other stuff that was going on Mm. but when it came time to make a choice it made it easier to understand that things would never be the same as they were um on the police on the police force so So there was a sense of it it disrupted your love and your safety oh yeah yeah absolutely um so you know went out decided to try to do something with our business well let me let me just say something so that sense of being awkward right so what it sounds to me like is that the people at the police force on the police force felt awkward Mm -hmm. they didn't know they didn't understand they didn't know if you were a ticking time bomb and this is so this is one of the things that I am trying to help through my show, Food, Faith, and Feelings, is helping to reduce stigma. I want people to understand because when people understand, there is this sense of connection because if I understand what's going on with you because there's something in my background that I can connect with in that. And so trying to help people understand what other people are going through and gives a sense of compassion and there's it reduces the awkwardness it reduces the shame and it reduces the stigma 
Oh, I, I don't disagree at all. So that's exactly what, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I had one uh, of the commanding officers, when I was going through all this, she said, I just want to tell you that I really appreciate the way that you have kept tried to keep a smile on your face. Mm. I know what you're going through, and I know what's happening. Mm. And I really appreciate, you know, most people would not have reacted that way. They would have yeah. been angry. They would have done whatever. But she you understood. Always, she, she did. She said, you always keep a smile on your face and try to handle everything in the situation that you're at with a positive attitude and that's I said awesome. that's all I can do I mean so she respected you probably the most she did and mm-hmm. it was somebody that I didn't like to be you know before and but it was <laughs> somebody hate that, that I know you're just wrong always, oh damn it I was wrong about that person yeah, no kidding and that's the one person that came to me and said that <laughs> and I, I really appreciated it what it, a gift know. is what I was going to say is what a gift absolutely um so you know then went out did the transport thing uh, once I started in recovery, I used to, God put the transport thing in my life for a reason. Yes. I had so many flight miles. I was platinum Delta and all I mean, I had five teams around the U.S. working transports. And I used to laugh because I said, I know that now that God really does have a sense of humor. When I wanted, when I was drinking, nobody would give me a free drink. And now every time I fly, everywhere I go, all the booze is free. <laughs> And I don't drink, so He's I can see him up you. there. I can see him up there laughing. You know, you hear here's all this free booze, but I was in the crown room. Could have been was, Satan testing you too. Exactly, it very well could have been. <laughs> Definitely, I'm thinking been. he was Satan was testing me. God was having fun. Okay, I hear you. <laughs> he had, he was laughing about it. Right, but you know, I look at it and then we we just decided I put our resumes and all this kind of stuff and actually had a company call me. Mm. And I went in for an interview, then went in for a second interview, and they said, well, we're going to move on. We appreciate you coming and all that. Well, I went home, and I said, you know, we decided then, let's just make, let's see if we can make a business out of the business that we've had since 1988 with police officers and all. Let's just see if we can do it. Mm-hmm. And then I got a then I got the uh, a call back from that same company wanting me to come in for the third interview. Mm. And I thought about it, and I made the appointment. And Susan, my wife, and I talked and said, do you really want to go back into a shift work where you're a supervisor over a bunch of people? This was going to be over a bunch of union people. And I said, not really. Mm. She said, well, then why do it? What? Let's just go. So I called him back and said, you know, I really appreciate what a relief. it. relief. I really appreciate it. I know that obviously after sending me away but then calling me back in for a third interview, you're getting ready to hire me. But I don't need to waste your time and my time by coming in there to do your interview knowing I'm not going to take the job. Mm. So they said, I really appreciate that. Uh, if you ever change your mind, give us a call back. I've never made the call. Uh, we've Our business is through scratching and nail-biting and everything else has managed to survive and, and grow, and we are where we are today. And, you know, I love the helping people. Mm. I think giving back, and that's why I just on my radio show that I do a lot of it is you know, nonprofit because right. giving them a forum to be able to come on and talk and be able to tell what they do and maybe get them to people that they need to be talking to or that people need to be talking to them. That's that gives me a lot of a lot of pleasure, but a lot of uh, enjoyment. Yeah. 
uh, I love doing that. It, it makes a big difference. That's the giving back part. I've, God has That's blessed me. That's the last part of the uh, 12 steps of recovery, right? Absolutely. The last three steps, I think, is all yeah. about giving it's back. It's all about giving back. It's all about giving, turning everything back over to God. Yeah. And Him setting you free. So, That's awesome. You know, you know, I'm glad to have you coming on and sharing this time spot with me. I think you're I'm gonna excited. Be, I think you're going to do great. Um, if you can get me to talk about all the crap I just talked about, you ought to have a great show. You ought to be able to get anything out of anybody. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty, uh, after 20-something years, you know, you get pretty good at something. So here's here's my thought, is in two weeks when I do my second show, mm-hmm. um, because you have shared so much with me, um, I would like for the all of our listeners, because I'm going to share these listeners with you, for you to do the same with me. And I, cause I have a recovery story. I know you do. I have, um, it's the, the bones of why I do what I do now. And, um, really just to share like what my heart is for the food, faith and feelings show, um, in case people want to come on and be a part, if they want to sponsor, if, you know, however they want to connect around this, um, I would love to be able to share all of that with them. Well, the 17th. Uh, I have a um, um, a show that's already already set. Okay. Because that's at the um, uh, Valor Awards for all the law enforcement and public safety so people. So this is your show. Is my show next week then? Yours, no, your show is next week. Oh. See, this was can my you, show. Now your show we, is next can week. Can we do this next week then? If you want me to. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I can do that. Okay. Uh, they may get tired of listening to me, but I can do that. I'm just well, kidding. they've been listening to you for, what, three years? Yeah. And apparently, they, you're yeah. like the hottest thing out, coming out of Gwinnett County. Well, I appreciate all the people that listen to me and share. <laughs> and everybody, please share all these Radio X things when you see them on there. Hit like and share. Uh, it helps so much in getting people's information out and getting their message out. Uh, and like I say, mine's not all about getting business. Mine's more about giving help. So. Yeah. And well, uh, you're definitely a huge support of Mana continued. Absolutely. And um, I really, really appreciate you sharing your your time slot and your listeners. And um, it's just a huge, you know, the word Mana actually means gift, mm-hmm. gift from heaven, gift from God. And so it's your being Mana to me. Well, so I, appreciate I appreciate it. it. The work you do, not to keep patting you on the back, but the work you do is awesome. Thank you. Uh, I've seen you grow so much mm-hmm. over the years. If you saw was, the financials, you would be so proud. Oh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I can remember as being president on your board. It, it, everything was tight. We were really pushing, trying to get somebody to help out, get somebody to donate, mm-hmm. just trying to make ends meet yep. to make it to help grow. And now you're looking at so much growth. Yeah. Uh, it is just awesome. The help that you're able to give people is just amazing. Thank you. Well, it is because of God. So I appreciate it. Well, folks, I could probably, if I told the rest of my story, we'd be here about another hour and a half. So <laughs> We've almost we've, gone an hour. We've almost gone an hour. I hope that we didn't bore anybody. Uh, I don't think that the there's too much to be bored about when you listen to somebody uh, spill their guts. But, um, you know, it just, sometimes it just works out. And I hope that anybody that's listening that has an issue has some type of a, an addicted issue, uh, please look at getting help. 
um, whether it be through a recovery center, whether it be through going to AA or NA or giving Mana a call, um, go go get help from somewhere. Sit down and talk to somebody about it because it can change your life. It really can. Mm-hmm. You, It doesn't have to always be a hole. If somebody said one time the best way to not dig the hole any deeper is to put the shovel down. Sometimes you just have to put that shovel down or that drink down or that drug down Pride. or sometimes Shame. put the board down. Yeah. But, um, you know, you need help on the inside of your head. It's not just the outside stuff that you're doing. you got to get the help on the inside of your head so that you want to quit. Because if you don't want to quit, you never will. Well, thank you for joining us on Case in Point, presented by Paradigm Security Services. And remember that you can join us live on Wednesdays at 11.30 in the morning. And you'll also be able to join Food, Faith, and Feelings with Dr. Jeannie Burnett every other Wednesday. I'll be on one, she'll be on the next, and we're going to swap out and see if we can't reach a whole lot more people. So I'll see you next week. I'm excited. Absolutely. I'll be here. (laughs) Or you can listen to our show anytime you want by going to businessradiox.com and clicking on the Gwinnett Studio, then click on Case in Point. And again, please hit that subscribe button for us uh, so that we know you're there. Join us next week at 1130 when Dr. Jeannie Burnett will be talking with Rick Strawn again. <laughs> or actually, Rick Strawn will be talking with Jeannie Burnett on Jeannie Burnett Show. <laughs> and if you're not confused, stick around. You will be. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we'll, uh, we'll get together then. And uh, be sure and uh, listen in on the 17th when we, tra- when we transmit from the Valor. Uh, award show at the uh, Infinite Energy Center. Uh, Major Chris Smith will be on uh, there with me. Uh, he is over the Criminal Investigation Division. Mm-hmm. Going to be a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. We'll talk then. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Jeannie Burnett. Thank you. And for our producers, Mike and lovely Amanda. And I am Rick Strawn. And remember, at Paradigm Security Services, we cover more than just your assets. <laughs> <laughs>